Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Uncle Cracker and you're listening to My Weekly Mixtape with Brian Colburn. Make sure you keep it out. I had a blast talking to him. Welcome to My Weekly Mixtape, a podcast that takes the classic mixtape approach to building a modern playlist. I'm your host, Brian Colburn. Tonight, I'm thankful to be joined by Matthew Schaefer, otherwise known the world over as Uncle Cracker. Thank you so much for joining me on My Weekly Mixtape. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Well, considering your tenure as a DJ in Kid Rock's Twisted Brown Trucker, I'm extremely interested to hear how you answer my first time guest question, which is what does the word mixtape mean to you? Oh man. <laughs> mixtape, what does it mean to me? Probably different than what it means to other people, I guess, maybe. Well, when I was a kid, mixtapes were everything. That was what I was listening to. It was a mix of everything. Like it was it was what I put it in my car. That's what a mixtape was for me, I guess. Well, as I mentioned, you started your career off as a DJ for Kid Rock's Twisted Brown Trucker. Can you talk about how that experience helped, for lack of a better word, prepare you for what you would eventually do as a solo artist? Well, yeah, I can talk on it. I just should have paid more attention to what was going on around me (laughs) while I was DJing for Kid Rock. I guess I should have paid more attention to what he was doing so that I would have been better prepared for uh, my stuff. (laughs) <laughs> but man, there was so much going on during that time. But the early Kid Rock days were just complete mayhem. It was nonstop. Well, shoot. And it was a lot of everything. There was a lot of nights I didn't know what the fuck we were doing out there. But there were a lot of nights where it, it finally made sense. You know, there was a lot of aha moments, but still yep, a lot of yep. WTS moments, you know? Mm-hmm. But I guess the one thing it did do, it, it did prepare me. It, it thickens your skin, you know? A lot of the business stuff, I watched a lot of things get thrown at him. It was nice to be able to, when you smelled it coming your way, you could duck a little quicker <laughs> than, than if you hadn't seen it happen before, you know. But that, and then uh, just on a nightly basis, you know, we, we were playing six and seven nights a week for a really, really long time. I don't know how Kid Rock kept his voice up, to be honest. Six and seven nights in these little shit bars for no dough. That was a learning thing in itself, you know. I wouldn't trade it for the world, to be honest, but. I learned a ton in a really short time. You know, we had basically just been torn like the Midwest. You know, we were were a a Detroit act and we would play, you know, uh, we we would hit Chicago. We would hit Cleveland. We would hit whatever we could get to cheaply because it still had to be uh, cost effective. Uh, Nobody was trying to incur any expense at all back then. But, you know, while we would would hit our pockets, our Midwest pockets, it wasn't until that Devil Without a Cause album draft that we went on tour and didn't come over three years it was a big step into a, a really unknown territory and we were all so young i don't know about that any fucking business going out there <laughs> 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 
Now, you co-wrote a majority of the songs on Devil Without a Cause, including the hit Only God Knows Why, which I want to focus on for a second because that song came out in 1998, which was the same year as Cher's Believe. Now, obviously, we're talking two different genres here, but both of these songs were some of the first hit songs that I personally remember using auto-tune as a vocal tool in the studio. Now, fast forward to 2023, I get surprised when I hear a song that doesn't adopt auto-tune in it. Were you in the studio sessions for the recording of that song? And if so, can you shed some light as to how that effect got introduced into the song? Because that was breaking new ground at the time. Yeah, I mean, that, that auto-tune thing was, was very new at the time. In fact, Bumpy was in the studio. He was the only cat we knew how to use that auto-tune thing. Like, shoot, I remember absolutely loving that song. And uh, I remember Bob wasn't really that comfortable with the song. It just wasn't his key. And he was like, ah, we can't really mess with that one. And because it wasn't his key, it was just like he wasn't going to turn that song in either. The song wouldn't have been on the record. But I remember we were in a studio. We were mixing the album at the time. And uh, I remember it was... Uh, Stephen Jenkins from Third Eye Blind was in the other room, and he had mentioned something about the auto-tune thing, and then Blumping was like, yeah, man, let's just try this thing. Well, I just remember, like, once Bob heard that you could make it sound like a vocoder, he was like, let's do that. Like, <laughs> because it wasn't anything different than records we listened to, you know, just like, it was glorious. I just remember it was used, and he just, like, slammed it even harder, and he was like, just do it. It'll sound like that. It was fun sounding at that point to him at that point. It wasn't about trying to make his voice in tune or in key or anything. He knew he wasn't in tune or in key, uh, <laughs> but that. But once he figured out what you could do with that, he just slammed it. Like, let's make it sound cool. Like That's kind of how that thing happened. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. 
we're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So now I want to fast forward to July 24th, 1999, 1.15 in the afternoon. Kid Rock and Twisted Brown Trucker take to the stage at a still-functioning Woodstock 99. And what I feel is one of the most memorable performances from that weekend, because that was a show for what I felt like was a defining moment for Kid Rock and Twisted Brown Trucker. 1.15 in the afternoon, the day was just getting started, and to me... Between the opening with Bob with the Bob with you hyping the crowd up and the pits are going insane and he's coming out wearing a full fur coat in 110 degree weather with no clouds and sunshine just battering down on the band. And then he had the water <laughs> bottles being thrown up on stage. To me, this really helped propel the entire group into kind of the mainstream. And I would love to know what that experience was like for you and the rest of the band that day. That experience was it was nuts. It was, it was absolutely not. It was another one of those WTF moments. We had just come back from Europe before we got to that Woodstock show. And it was just nuts. I mean, we're just seeing people back, like Wycliffe John's in the back, P. Diddy's in the back. And like you said, it was one fifteen in the afternoon. It was absolutely bonkers. It was just something in the air that afternoon, too. It was very, uh, just, it was nuts. And the, the water bottle thing you're talking about, I don't know when he told everybody to do that. I'm just remembering my head thinking, do that, man. Like, it, was, <laughs> it just seemed so dangerous at the time. People were throwing shit all over the place. Uh, it was bananas, though. It was bananas. And uh, you're right. There was something about that show that was just monstrous. It was huge. I don't think we've ever played one bigger or that felt that big. Yeah, that, I mean, just the video alone was just insanity to watch. It was. Now, coming out of that, you transitioned from DJing and writing songs on Devil Without a Cause to being front and center on your own original music on 2000's Double Wide, which included the hit singles Yeah, 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 which was the first solo song of yours that I ever heard, followed up by the massive hit Follow Me. Can you talk about what that transition was like for you going from being in the DJ role to being front and center. It was bizarre because I was so comfortable DJing. I was so comfortable in the back. I loved the back. There's no pressure in There's no pressure in the back. You, know, you, don't, you don't have to address anybody. You don't have to greet anybody. You don't have to talk. You don't have to do nothing back there. It's all on his shoulders. You know, so that's why I was saying earlier, like I should have paid more attention uh, just because the transition into a front man it didn't happen like easily for me. Just, I'm not a big talker. You could probably guess that in about a minute now. Just not a big talker. So it wasn't an easy transition for me to go from the back to the front. But I didn't have any choice either. Yeah, I mean, look, the songs were hitting. And in 2002, it got even bigger for you with your album, No Stranger to Shame. Your cover of Dobie Gray's Drift Away was a huge radio staple that year. Can you talk about whose idea it was to cover that song and then how you got 
the man himself to come on the track with you. That's pretty incredible. So when, when I was promoting that album, I would go by these radio stations and do the, you know, the morning drives and the, you know, you'd go in there and do acoustic songs. Well, the only song we were promoting follow me at the time was you know, just an acoustic song and there was nothing else really on the album that sounded like it, but we had to do three songs when we got to these radio stations. Well, Kid Rock was the one who was like, why don't you drift away, man? And that'll fit right in there. And it's right in your vocal range. And, uh, we did that. And then I came to New York and did, uh, Scott Shannon's show. A New York radio legend. When I grew up, he was the Z Morning Zoo on Z100, but by that point, he was WPLJ all the way. Yep. When I got done with that, it was Scott Shannon that called the president of my label and was like, if you guys don't have Cracker do Drift Away for the next album, you're, you're screwing up. Wow. So, uh, you know, and of course, you know, with the regular, well, Scott Shannon says, if you got to do it, you got to do it, you know, this, <laughs> and I did it. And uh, <laughs> thank God Scott Shannon is Scott Shannon. He was, uh, he was very instrumental in that song, making it to the record. And uh, just, you know, that was one of them things where if I had sent it to him, I'm like, ah, you're dumb, you're not going to hear it, cover that song. But since Scott Shannon said, it was, you know, it was uh, the Bible. Of course, of uh, course. Yeah, legend, right? Always was the nicest cat coming through the radio station. Always made sure, like, he, he was always very attentive, and, you know, he, he didn't just phone it in or anything. He was always the coolest. Well, coming out of that, I want to talk about my favorite track from No Stranger to Shame, and it's something that you wrote with Michael Bradford and Martin Tino Gross, a song called Memphis Soul Song. It's a song that I've personally covered in my acoustic shows throughout the years, and it's one that my wife and I truly bonded on when we first started dating. So I'd love to hear the story about that tune from like a lyrical perspective. So a lot of that was Tino. Tino is a, uh, he's a guy from Detroit. And uh, known him forever. He was in a band called the Hollow Diablos. He's always had like crazy cool songs. And he had this Memphis Soul song idea. And uh, he gave it to me one day. And me and Bradford went in the studio and just kind of riffed on it. And it was kind of made to be like an ode to Memphis and uh, more of the old stack stuff. But it took a big turn in the studio. It got prettier in the studio, obviously. He does, you know. But without Tino and Mike Bradford, the song wouldn't even happen. But it was. Uh, we used to pay homage to Stacks and those, uh, even the video we went through by the Stacks. Mm-hmm. Stacks mm-hmm. Great song, though. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Uh, it didn't work for me. But, uh, and I'd love to send you this version we have of the actual George Nairs doing the Harmony Time. We had a version of it. Because we had, we all, I wanted to do a remix of it, a different thing, just because. And then we got the actual George Nairs doing harmonies on a remix. It's so dope. Man, I'm just sitting here picturing what it must sound like, and it's now officially a mission of mine to hear that version. <laughs> oh, it, they just pop so nice, and I tried getting the Jordanaires in that video, but it was hard. You know, one guy had a you know a, a haircut appointment that he couldn't get rid of, and uh, <laughs> we were filming some of it in a bar, and it was secular. The one guy, he couldn't do it. And, uh, I learned a lot from uh, them not being able to do the video. I learned a lot. Wow. Everybody's got a lot of shit at 100%. Well, the last song from No Stranger that I want to touch on is one that I enjoyed when I first heard the album, but became much more profound for me over the years because my wife and I are parents to two lovely young ladies, and that would be Letter to My Daughters. You co-wrote this song with outlaw country icon David Allen Coe. And I've spent many years trying to find out kind of the story behind how this came together. And now I finally get to ask you in person, 
What was David's role in that song? And how did you guys come up with that? Because that one really hits. You feel that one. You know what? One of my favorite songs years ago and in the earlier Kid Rock days, somehow Kid Rock was in an interview. Uh, I don't know if it was Rolling Stone or something like that. It might've been Rolling Stone, but he, had, he was in an interview and he was talking about David Allen Coe, but he had dropped David Allen Coe's name. Well, uh, when we were somewhere down in Texas on tour and David Allen Coe's people had reached out. And at the time, I think David's son and him were having problems or, you know, uh, he had a teenage son, but I guess his son had came to him with this article. Like, look, that kid Rock is talking about in this article. So it really was an excuse for them two to talk and get along. It was a good spot for him to be in. So he reached out to the Kid Rock thing. And, uh, and then uh, we met him down in Texas. And David and I really, really hit it off and became good buddies. And I, I just happened to be uh, finishing my album when I met him. So I, I didn't have any room to do anything with, but we decided we would uh, try and figure something out. I mean, I'd love to have something. That, that guy is one of the greatest writers of my time, I guess. Well, you know, it would be my time. I mean, his, his <laughs> stuff was older and, and you know, legendary, but of this time, but like, I think he's, he's just a great writer. Regardless of the songs, you know, he's got some soul. And he, uh, he and I became good boys. He kind of mentored me a little bit, you know, when my first record came out, you know, we, I'd be like, man, motherfuckers, they just never write nothing good. And he's like, man, he can't read better than that shit. He's like, this is what's going to happen. You're going to read something that's good. But if you're going to believe the good, you got to believe the bad. But don't fuck with none of that shit. He told me a long time ago about reading reviews and uh, that type of stuff. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Don't believe none of that shit. Fast forward to 2004, from one country artist to another, you recorded a pair of songs with Kenny Chesney, Last Night Again from your 72 Degrees and Sunny album, and the hit When the Sun Goes Down, which appears on Kenny's album of the same name. Can you talk about the significance of those two collaborations for you as an artist? Because I feel like it really helped introduce you to a whole new audience in the country world that may not have heard your earlier albums because there wasn't at the time so much of a country rock pop crossover appeal as there is now. Totally. The Kenny collaboration came out of nowhere, to be honest. I think I was just coming off the road off the no stranger record and uh kid rock called me he goes hey man kenny chesney called me and asked me if i thought uh you would go do uh he kenny was playing his first stadium show and it was in his hometown of knoxville tennessee he was playing neyland stadium and it was you know obviously big shit for any artist and he he was trying to uh he was putting together just some special guests you know to add to the show or whatnot and uh so Kid Rock was like, I don't know, call him and ask him. So he, he's like, I gave him your number. He's going to be calling Polly. And I was like, all right, go. And then, uh, I didn't know who it was. You know, at the time, I just wasn't listening to any radio, let alone, you know, country radio or anything like that. You know, we'd been on the road so long. I mean, um, what we, what DRL was gospel, you know, at the time. Just, uh, I just wasn't in any other loop but our own bubble, right? So, but he had called and he was really cool on the phone and, uh, and he sent a jet. So, I, of course, like, yeah, man, uh, I do believe I can <laughs> hang out with y'all for a minute, right? <laughs> I felt like Eddie Murphy in trading places. <laughs> he sent the jet, right? Yeah. But very cool. And uh, he and I hit it off, too. And uh, But I went and did uh, a couple songs at uh, New York Stadium. And then he was like, man, I got this track I think you'd be great on. 
And that was when the sun goes down. He had to have that song. And it was funny. I was like, man, well, I'd be dope. I'm like, I'm in, you know? And then like, I remember some time went by and I hadn't heard nothing about it. Nothing from him. He had come through Detroit on tour and called and that's when I come out and do it. But ended up doing when the sun goes down after I pestered him a little, a little while. Like, Hey man, we can do that song. In my mind, I didn't have much time left before I was back on on the road again. So I was like trying to knock out any piece I could, you know, Back then, you could only do an album once every couple of years or so, you know, not like you can do today. So if any chance to get in the studio and, and do something new, I was all over it because it didn't happen a lot. Right. Didn't have a lot. You had to go through record labels, album cycles. And so, yeah, that was uh, that. And then uh, last night again, I was doing my third album and I was in Nashville cutting a couple of these tracks. And it was funny because I didn't have that song written. And then... uh Kenny was like, hey, man, I'm going to come by the studio. Let's do a song or whatever. And I was like, fuck, oh, Chesney's coming by the studio. I don't even have a song like for him <laughs> to kind of, but I know he's coming by. So me and Bradford wrote that song in like 20 minutes before he got there. Wow. Yeah. I love it. It's definitely not one that people hear or have heard. You know, it's definitely not, not one I play at the shows or live or like that, but it's one of my favorites ever. It's a great tune. Thank you. The next album I want to focus on is 2009's Happy Hour, which was produced by Rob Cavallo. I'd like to talk about one of my personal favorites from the album, which is a mashup song you did called Live in the Dream, which I was always shocked that it wasn't chosen as a single because a few years earlier in 2007, Kid Rock's All Summer Long became this massive summer anthem for the year with mashing up Werewolves of London, All Summer Long, and Night Moves. Can you talk about how your original song and White Snake's Here I Go Again came together. Because when I first listened to the album, I had to stop it. I'm like, oh man, this has a Here I Go Again vibe. And then in the middle of the song, when you broke out into it, I was like, whoa, this is what I'm talking about. This is amazing. And it blew my mind. It's always been one of my favorites. Well, somebody sent me that mashup. I think it was through my manager, Josh Abraham. He had written it with a couple cats. And then it got to me, and I changed some things. Oh, I remember a Cabalo cutting it in the studio and he had a ball dealing with it. It was just, uh, that was up his alley. And you know what? We did think that should have been a single. We, we wanted it to probably be the third single, but the only problem with that was is we needed the second single to work to get to the third single, right? Mm -hmm. And the second single didn't work. It was, well, I, I had had Kid Rock on the single. It was a song called Good to Be Me. Yeah, that was yep. the second single after Smile. Well, it was too twangy for uh, adult contemporary stations, so they asked us to give them a mix without all the, some of the twanginess. Well, we just went in there and we kind of did like a, you know, let, let's get rid of some of the twangy guitars. Let's, let's kind of dig in a little bit. Let's make it more sound like the squeeze, you know, something like that, who I love, by the way, the squeeze. I thought it was fresh, but then uh, Kid Rock didn't like the remix of it, so he didn't want them fit. But so then at radio, you know, we're having them stop playing the remix. And then we just looked like the two cell tops. So it just kind of fell apart on the second single. And then we didn't even talk about a third single. It was just, there was all kinds of drama. I was going to say, that's a shame because the first single, we obviously can't talk about Happy Hour without bringing up Smile, which was a crossover pop and country hit that you wrote alongside of JT Harding, Blair Daly, and Jeremy Bowes. 
Can you talk about the longevity of this track? Because I mean, to this day, it's still used in pop culture, TV shows, commercials. I've been to weddings where I've seen mothers and sons dance to this song. It's just all encompassing, which is nearly impossible to do in three minutes. And you accomplished it. So that song, you know, it was big at uh, Adult Contemporary and it took 10 months to run that thing off the chart that Adult Contemporary and, uh, which is almost a year, obviously, but it's a long time. And then the program director at WYCB in Detroit, Tim, great guy. I had never met him prior to this, but he took it upon himself to take the adult contemporary version of the song and play it on his country station, which is the eighth largest country station in the country at the time. Well, it ran so good for him. I think it started researching and he called the president of my label and was like, listen, I just played this, you know, at my country station that it worked. This thing's a monster. You guys are dumb if you don't take this to country radio. And at the time, they had signed a thing with Zach Brown at the time and there was this whole country team, bigger picture, out of Nashville that was working the Zach Brown radio. So there was an Atlantic record thing and a bigger picture thing. So they didn't have uh, uh, the resources like they did then. So they, they utilized and Otherwise, everybody would have just been sitting around not doing anything. Zach, I think, was back in the studio at the time. But, so, yeah, they took Smile to Rick Country Radio. And then we got lucky with that. And like you said, just twice, you know, if there one, one at pop, one at country. Kind of sweet. And that transitioned you into your first full-length country album, which was 2012's Midnight Special, released on Sugar Hill Records. You wrote the lion's share of the music along with Smile co-writer JT Harding, including songs like Nobody Sad on a Saturday Night and I'll Be There. Those are two of my favorites from the album. Can you talk about what the transition was like for you to release a full-length country album versus the multi-genre mix that you had incorporated into all of your prior releases, even going as far back as to your time with Kid Rock? It was different, but, you know, uh, you know, I talked a little bit about the, the smile thing and then the you know, bigger picture radio team taking it to country radio at Nashville. Well, this is a whole different ball game. And when uh, Atlantic decided they were going to let me go in and cut the country album, you know, all these pieces to this puzzle were in place. Well, by the time, you know, I had finished this record, all those pieces had fallen apart. And there was no more, uh, Atlantic didn't have any, uh, they didn't have the resources to take me to country radio again, you know, with this country album I had since made. So I think everybody was kind of just sitting there like, ah, now what do we do? And I was like, well, I know what we do. You guys let me go. You know, I've been here 14 years. I don't even know anybody at the label anymore. Just let me go and buy this record back. And and then we took it to Sugar Hill and let them put it out. Nice guys over there. Uh, and it was nice enough. It was different going from a major to an indie. It was not something I had done before. But there still wasn't any real pressure. I wasn't looking at it like I was trying to dip into the country game. I mean, we, we still pulled everybody on a, a Muscle Shoals to cut that record. I wasn't putting on, you know, Nashville. You know, it was uh, one of my best sounding albums for sure my favorite record to date, you know, as a whole, I loved it. I couldn't be more proud of that record still, but it was cool. It was just, it was a time in my life though, when I had spent, like I said, 14 years at Atlantic Lava Records, and this, I was out of that deal and, and I was in this Sugar Hill thing, you know, which really, it was a great time for me. I'm like, wow, I was going through the divorce at the time too. It was great. 
was a, I say that like that, but it was a, it was a whole different time. So it was all kinds of a different, very liberating and all kinds of response. You know, I was released from a marriage, released from a record label, released. Uh, it was just one of the good times. I wish the album would have did better. You know, I guess commercially, but it's a great album. I completely agree. There's a lot of fantastic songs on it. And obviously, a lot has changed in the music industry since Midnight Special dropped in 2012, especially in terms of how fans consume music. Since then, you've released yeah. a number of singles over the years, but there hasn't been a full-length album. However, in 2023, so far, you've released three new singles, Reason to Drink, Sweet 16, and most recently, Cruising Altitude. Has the tactical shift in the music industry changed your approach to releasing new music? I guess, yes. You know, just being able to release whatever, whenever. It took me a long time to uh, decide, I guess, if that's what we wanted to do or if we were going to do that way, you know. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I'm watching these kids peel off records like they're nothing, you know, every, you know songs, you know, every you know, like, oh, got a new one. Let's just drop it next week. Gonna just drop new, <laughs> which I used to. I used to beg my label to do. You know, years ago, like, can I go in and do a new record now? Like, just you know, you wanted more content. You want to, but nope, nope, nope. Got to wait. You know, album cycles gonna take two years. Here we got, we got. Well, we need to plan seven months in advance for this and that, and we got to find a release date in there. I don't know if we got one yet for next year, and just everything was different. But just to be able to drop one every 40 days, that's just been the release. Well, when, while you release, I guess. Well, I have to put my news reporter cap on for just one question. Since you have released three singles in 2023 thus far, are those songs maybe part of an, I don't know, larger, forthcoming, full-length album that you maybe could shed some light on? Or are you going to continue to do the singles route moving forward? Well, we're going to do a full album, uh, 2024, I want to say it's going to be like April, maybe March, April or something like that. I forget what, what, what we'll talk about date-wise, but there's a full album we're going to drop then. I just kind of finished because I just released it. Things, so I want to make sure there's a few more behind it, but that'll be fine. Fun. Well, out of all the songs we've discussed today, I'm embedding a playlist over at myweeklymixtape.com so that way listeners can check out all the songs we've been talking about. But in the true spirit of mixtape collaborations, I'd love for you to close out this playlist with three songs that you feel truly encapsulate Uncle Cracker as an artist. They don't have to be the hits. You can go as deep into your catalog as you like, but three songs to kind of close out our discussion today that you feel are important to your musical legacy. Uh, Better Days, I would say. The first song off Double Wise. Who We Are, off of Midnight Special. Hope it's the last track off there. And, uh, man, further down the road, off 72 and funny. Nice. Well, Matt, this has been an absolute pleasure talking music with you. Thank you so much for joining me on my weekly mixtape. Oh, man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Anytime I can sit around and talk about myself, I, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I do appreciate it, man. Thank you so much. I had a ball talking to you. And remember, mixtapers, you can head to myweeklymixtape.com to hear all the songs we've discussed in this mix 
through the playlist embedded on the episode page, as well as to check out the full catalog of my weekly mixtape episodes. And if you like what you're hearing on the show, you can help me out by either telling a friend, leaving the show a five-star review wherever you're tuning in, or becoming a Patreon mixtaper at patreon.com forward slash myweeklymixtape. That's all for this week. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, enjoy the tunes. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.